0: The Way Out podcast, episode 226.
1: My background uh, started over two decades ago when I was a mental health counselor working at uh, a, a regional mental health crisis center in central Illinois. We would house people who were sent to us from the hospital. Um, they would stay at the crisis center for a period of time. I noticed that not only did they have a mental health issue that they were struggling with. But a lot of them also had a substance abuse issue that was uh, involved in their lives as well. So I went back to the University of Illinois and obtained a a master's degree in addictions counseling. Minninger Clinic is a psychiatric hospital. It's one of the top 10 psychiatric hospitals in the nation. They serve both adolescents and adults. And I was hired to be an addictions counselor at Menninger Clinic. And I worked on the adolescent unit as well as the adult units, providing uh, counseling and addiction services to both adolescents and adults. And I worked at Menninger for uh, over a decade. I retired a little over a year ago. And after I retired, I made a decision that I wanted to fulfill Uh, the goal that I'd had of writing a book that would be uh, a resource, a, a guide map, so to speak, for anyone who wanted to know about adolescent substance abuse, particularly family members, Mm. whether they have a child that's using alcohol or drugs, or perhaps they have a child who is a preteen, and they just want to know more about adolescent substance abuse. My advice is pay attention to any type of changes that you see in your child. Don't take them for granted, and the more of these changes that you notice, the more more likely there is an underlying problem. You have to look beyond the substance. You can't just focus on the substance because more times than not you're very likely to find an underlying reason why they're using the substances. Unfortunately, for many people who become addicted to a substance, we treat the addiction, we treat the the substance, but we often do not treat the underlying condition. So the person may be able to maintain a period of sobriety for a while, but they're still trying to cope with those underlying intolerable thoughts and feelings and memories, which means they're at a higher risk of relapse. What we're trying to accomplish with an, an, an adolescent just to get them to move from that that pre contemplation to what we call the contemplation stage. Our brains you know are sort of hardwired as a result of the substance use to go for the immediate relief Yeah. we have to learn those skills we have to practice those skills so that they will become so well well done that they override our brain which is telling us go and seek the relief you need it now go and seek the relief mm. um, and and, but but we can. We can learn those skills, and we can practice them. And then over time, we can learn that these skills can become as effective as the substance use used to be in the past. Brain development consequences, those are the two big differences that I think exist between adolescent and adult addiction. Regardless of the substance and regardless of the extent of time, we know that once the person goes into recovery and stops using, Our brains have a remarkable capacity to heal themselves, and you can see some pretty dramatic increases over time. Oftentimes, when you have these two going together, a a process disorder like eating disorder or or self-harm, and you have a substance use like marijuana or alcohol, when one of them goes down, the other one will spike up. So you can go ahead and treat the alcohol or the marijuana, but if you do and you don't treat the the other issue, you're going to see the other one spike up learn as much as you can about it if you have a child don't give up hope there is effective treatment out there recovery and and sobriety is possible and um and and you can find the help that
0: you need welcome way out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the way out podcast we appreciate your ears our mission is simple To bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out Podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out Podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and allrecoveryrings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's all recoveryrings.com. The Way Out Podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees, in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Finally, a word of caution this podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this edition of The Way Out, we've got a must-listen interview with Richard Capriola, who shares with us invaluable tools that can serve as a guide we can use should we have an adolescent child or a loved one that may be engaging in substance abuse. Many of us know all too well how devastating addiction and alcoholism can be to a family, especially if the addicted individual is a child or adolescent. For over two decades, Richard has been providing mental health and addiction counseling services to both adults and adolescents, giving him a wealth of experience and knowledge in the areas of addiction and mental health diagnosis and treatment. One critical fact we explore in our discussion is the key differences in how addiction manifests itself in the life of an adolescent as compared to an adult. These key differences impact how we identify a substance abuse problem in an adolescent versus an adult and can make all the difference in making a real and meaningful difference in a child's life. Richard has distilled all of this incredibly valuable wisdom and practical guidance in his new book, The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. We discuss how we recognize substance abuse, addiction, alcoholism, as well as process and mental health disorders in an adolescent child, how we can get them the help they need, and what that help looks like in adolescent children. So listen up, Richard Capriola, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the way out podcast. What a great topic and message you have to share with us here off the top. Why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the way out podcast audience Tell us a little bit about your background, about yourself, and then we will dive headlong into a really important topic around adolescent substance abuse, how we might be able to detect it, how we can address it, and some of the other issues that we can address along the way. Take it away, Richard.
1: Thank you, Charles. Uh, First, let me say that I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today about adolescent substance abuse. It's a very important problem. Um, It's a very critical issue. And my goal is simply to help people understand what's going on with adolescent substance abuse and give them information, and resources so that they are simply better informed about this problem. My background uh, started over two decades ago when I was a mental health counselor working at uh, a a regional mental health crisis center in central Illinois. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked as a counselor on that unit. We would house people who were sent to us from the hospital. Um, They would stay at the crisis center for a period of time. And I noticed that not only did they have a mental health issue that they were struggling with, but a lot of them also had a substance abuse issue that was uh, involved in their lives as well. So I went back to the University of Illinois and obtained a a master's degree in addictions counseling. I continued to work at the uh, crisis center for, for a while until I was offered a job in Houston, Texas at Menninger Clinic. Menninger Clinic is a psychiatric hospital. It's one of the top 10 psychiatric hospitals in the nation. They serve both adolescents and adults. And I was hired to be an addictions counselor at Menninger Clinic, and I work on the adolescent unit as well as the adult units, providing uh, counseling and addiction services to both adolescents and adults. And I worked at Menninger for uh, over a decade. I retired a little over a year ago, and after I retired, I made a decision that I wanted to fulfill uh, the goal that I'd had of writing a book that would be uh, a resource, a, a guide map, so to speak, for anyone who wanted to know about adolescent substance abuse, particularly family members, hmm. whether they have a child that's using alcohol or drugs, or perhaps they have a child who is a preteen, and they just want to know more about adolescent substance abuse. So I put this book together. Um, it really, really is a a resource for anyone who wants to uh, know more about adolescent substance abuse.
0: The name of your book is?
1: The name of the book is The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse.
0: We will have that in the show notes along with a link. So check the show notes if you're listening to this right now. And you'll have a very handy link. To the Addicted Child by Richard Capriola. Richard, off the top, let's talk about some warning signs that a loved one that is an adolescent, a child, is potentially dealing with a substance use problem.
1: I I think there are are warning signs that parents can pay attention to, and I think they need to focus on is any changes that they see in their child, any changes in their child's behavior, any changes in their appearance, any changes in their overall um, environment that they're dealing with. Um, uh, Sometimes parents will simply write these changes off as being normal adolescent development, and sometimes they are, but, but sometimes they're not. So we shouldn't just take them for granted. When we see them, we should pay attention to them. They may be a signal that there's something underneath the surface that we need to be 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 paying attention to. Some examples would be you you might have a child who used to participate and enjoy sports, no longer participates in any of the sport activities. Mm. You may have a child whose grades were very good and all of a sudden you start to see them decline. Mm. You may see a child who um, would would very openly talk about their friends introduce their friends to you you knew who their friends were now becomes very secretive about their friends and you really don't know what their friends are who their friends are or what they're doing you may see a dramatic change in the sleep pattern for your child so my advice is pay attention to any type of ch- changes that you see in your child. Don't take them for granted. And the more of these changes that
0: you notice, the more likely there is an underlying problem. I can think back to when I was a teenager, Richard, and uh, I started using substances when I was 16 years old. The things that you indicated and things that you listed in terms of changes of behavior, changes of appearance, starting being guarded and uh, secretive about my whereabouts and my goings on and uh, the kinds of company I kept. I mean, that was sort of check the box, check the box, check the box, all of (laughs) the above. And uh, and I love my dad to pieces, tremendous role model in my own life in so many ways, but he didn't know how to really deal with it. His style, I think, mostly was combative, which didn't always mix well with my rebellious, angsty attitude.
1: No, it probably didn't. But but on the other hand, uh, I think many parents exhibit those kinds of behaviors. Um, you know, they may be they may be afraid, they may be scared, they may be angry, mm-hmm. uh, they may be very anxious. And and as parents, I think the first thing they want to do is save their child. Right. And it almost becomes a desperate attempt to try and get their child away from these drugs, so they will come across as being very authoritative. They will become oh, crossed as dictatorial. You know, you will stop doing this. You have to stop doing this. Or they'll say, if you continue to do this, you know, you're never going to get a job. You won't graduate from school. You know, you're, you're, you're going to have all kinds of problems. And and, and and the child will pull away from that. They will rebel against that because they they feel they're being lectured to. They're being dictated to. So, so it sets up this dynamic between the parent and the child that really is not helpful for either one.
0: What kind of approach in (laughs) your experience works well when we are suspecting a child, an adolescent, maybe engaging in the use or abuse (laughs) of substances? Well, I think the first thing
1: is to attempt to attempt to have a conversation with your child about this issue. Many times that's not going to work out well because they just don't want to hear it. They just don't want to talk about it. They don't want to listen to you. But at least I think you have to make an attempt to create a dialogue, to to create a conversation. Now, that's not easy to do from the perspective of, of a lot of parents because... We're not trained as parents to really have a good conversation with adults or with children. And the reason for that is we're very good at listening to words. We're not very good at listening to the underlying feelings behind those words. Mm. So we may hear what our child is saying. We may hear the words, but we're not able to listen to the feelings behind them so that the child begins to feel as if they're not really being understood. So if you start a conversation in a, by, by making accusations and making threats, you pretty well have short-circuited the conversation from the beginning. But if you can start a conversation by trying to get to the feelings, to, to, to listen more than talk, mm-hmm. and to really listen to what the feelings are, you might be able to actually start a conversation based on those feelings rather than the words there have been studies, for example, that have asked teenagers, what is it that keeps you from talking to your parents about things that bother you? And over half of those kids said that it is a fear of being judged. Mm -hmm. They fear being judged by their parents. So, and this is not uh, something that just occurs overnight. This type of relationship that I'm talking about, it takes time to to to, to build. Uh, the first few attempts might become disastrous, and they might and they might become very frustrating for the parent. But the more you go at it, and the more attempts you try to listen to be, listen beyond the words to the feelings, the more likely you are to get a productive conversation going on with your child. The other thing that I noticed in my in my working with adolescents who were using substances is that you have to look beyond the substance. You can't just focus on the substance because more times than not, you're very likely to find an underlying reason why they're using the substances. For example, Most of the kids that I treated who were using marijuana, and they were using it multiple times a day, when I asked them to help me understand why they were using marijuana, the number one answer that I got from them was it helps my anxiety. Mm. So when we look beyond the alcohol and drugs... We may very find an underlying reason why a child is using a substance like marijuana or might be drinking alcohol to medicate an underlying issue that also needs to be treated.
0: And that is such an important message, Richard. We talk about this all the time on this podcast that the reason we often Using substances, drugs, and alcohol is to self medicate because we didn't have any other tools to be able to deal with some of these emotions and feelings we were experiencing depression, anxiety, loneliness, fears. These are very powerful emotions and magnified when we're adolescents. And so the first time we maybe use a substance, we learn right away that it works to alleviate these symptoms where nothing else had before and nothing we tried before really worked, right?
1: That's very true, that's very well said because I think we all have what I describe as intolerable thoughts, feelings, or memory. Mm. They're intolerable. They might be, like you said, depression or anxiety. They might be trauma. Um, they could be a whole host of feelings and emotions and thoughts that we find intolerable. And, and when we experience them, we are going to find something to relieve them. And and adolescents have never, well, I won't say never, but adolescents rarely have been taught the skills to be able to deal with these symptoms like anxiety. So they have gravitated toward. a a substance and they have discovered that that substance relieves that anxiety or or eases that depression. And and once you latch onto a substance and you know it works and you know it works quickly to relieve this intolerable thought or feeling or memory, then that reinforces itself and you continue to use it. And, and, And unfortunately, for many people who become addicted to a substance, we treat the addiction, we treat the the substance, but we often do not treat the underlying condition. So the person may be able to maintain a period of sobriety for a while, but they're still trying to cope with those underlying intolerable thoughts and feelings and memories, which means they're at a higher risk of
0: relapse. Well said, and absolutely spot on in my own experience and in my own using an abuse and addiction history. My mom died when I was 11 years old. I experienced overwhelming trauma and grief because of that. And the first time I used substances was the first time I felt free from those horrible emotions that I could never really free myself from until that moment. And that was a feeling of freedom that I was desperately seeking. And that became my solution going forward. It wasn't until I was in my thirties and both engaged in meaningful therapy and a 12 step treatment that I have the ability to really move past it and get unstuck, as it were.
1: Yes. And and I think that points very clearly to the importance of when you have someone who's using a substance, you need to have a comprehensive assessment. Mm. You can't just have an addictions assessment. You know, I've, I've done... I don't know, hundreds of addictions assessments. Mm. And, and they're important. It, it, mm. it is a critical part of an overall assessment program. But it must, but the, the, the assessment, in order to be comprehensive, must go beyond that. It it's it, and I talk about this in a chapter in my book, and, and I list the type of assessments that are important. For example, there needs to be a complete physical examination that includes blood work, EEGs, EKGs, the entire spectrum to make Make sure that there's not something physically that might be contributing to how the person is feeling. And then you need a good psychological or neuropsychological examination to to uncover these underlying emotional issues like depression or anxiety or maybe an emerging personality disorder or or some other disorder that might go unnoticed if you didn't have, um, you know, a, a good thorough psychological examination. Maybe the depression could be anything going on. The point is you need to have a comprehensive assessment to get a complete picture of the the person. And then that forms not only a comprehensive diagnosis, but it also sets the groundwork for an effective treatment
0: program. As I discovered, just engaging in therapy and not addressing my addiction and alcoholism didn't work. because I couldn't do the meaningful work from a therapy perspective if I kept on medicating and drowning out my feelings and my emotions. Conversely, addiction and alcoholism treatment didn't work without addressing my trauma and the mental health issues because... Sobriety became intolerable without having those issues addressed, and I would experience overwhelming feelings that would trigger a relapse, right? So really addressing those things in parallel was critical.
1: It is critical. Otherwise, the the person is trapped into uh, like a catch-22 situation, right? You know we can we can send them to a, a drug rehab facility and there are many good ones out there and they do good work and and people do benefit from them. But if 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 I'm suffering from severe depression or anxiety or I have a, a, a another type of of, of of psychiatric issue going on, um, if if that's not addressed, then it's exactly what you said. I'm going to struggle to complete the treatment. I'm going to struggle after afterwards and 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 the entire
0: attempt to try and help me is going to be compromised certainly this is no infomercial for hazelden benny ford that is the treatment center i was fortunate enough to go to and because they had the ability to be able to treat my mental health along with my substance use that ended up being the game changer and the therapist was really really well informed and well indoctrined into the 12 step centric substance abuse treatment so there was a crossover right between the two treatments even though they were you know it was a separate individual that i engaged with from a mental health perspective than I did with the addiction treatment. It was, it felt holistic and it felt integrated. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, that makes perfect sense because that's exactly what you're looking for. You're looking for that integration. You're looking for that coordination. You're looking for both the addiction component, the addiction treatment component and the psychological treatment component to work together as a team.
0: So we noticed that potentially our, our adolescent loved one is experiencing substance abuse issues and we want to help. What are our next steps? What are the steps that we can take that can help us get the help that this child needs? As I know from my own history, I really wasn't, able to address my own addiction and alcoholism until I was really ready for help, until I was really willing to accept help. How do we approach that with an adolescent?
1: Well, most of the adolescents that I worked with were in the pre-contemplation stage of Mm -hmm. change. They were in denial. Mm-hmm. um and i think uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes yes i was in that for 20 years
1: <laughs> some of them stay yes. in it for quite a period of time yeah. but but when you have a child who moves from the pre-contemplation which is denial to the contemplation which is okay maybe it's a problem i'm i'm not sure i want to quit but i'm at least willing to take a look at it, Mm -hmm. that's a huge change for an adolescent or even an adult moving from that denial phase to the open mind phase. And I think that's what we're trying to accomplish with an an, an adolescent, just to get them to move from that that pre-contemplation to what we call the contemplation stage. But after you've tried to have a conversation with a child and, you know, it, it may or may not work out very well, you have to, as a parent, insist on a comprehensive assessment. Now, the child's probably going to object and scream and and, and not want to participate. But really, you have to take that decision away from them and you have to get this child into an environment where you can get the type of assessments that you need to be able to decide what is the next best step? What are my options? How severe is the problem? Is this a child that will do well with outpatient treatment? Is this a child who will, who will need an intensive outpatient program? Or are the underlying issues and the substance abuse so severe that this is a child that's looking at some form of residential treatment. You can't make those decisions until you have this comprehensive
0: assessment in your hands. And I think that's really important, that assessment. I could tell you I was subjected to such an assessment, Richard, when I was 16 years old, and it was not my choice. And I lied my butt off in that (laughs) assessment. I... I lied because I knew what the options were, of course, right? Mm-hmm. And I knew that it had to be related to the frequency of my use. So I was fortunate enough to be able to get into outpatient treatment, uh, which was great uh, for me because that meant 28 days and I'm back out doing what I want to do again, which is use substances. And I waxed poetically about... Um, steps that I didn't work, and I'm sure you've never, Richard, in all the time uh, that you worked as an addiction treatment counselor. Never saw anybody like me, but I waxed poetically about (laughs) steps that I didn't work, and I became the treatment ninja, Richard, at 16 years old.
1: Um, yeah, I've 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 seen that happen <laughs> many times. <laughs> I uh, I once had a uh, young man walk into my office and um, and um, you know he, he he claimed to have worked all of the twelve steps in his residential program, mm-hmm. and I could tell almost immediately that you know he, he was trying to pull something over on me. <laughs> Uh-huh. And, and I confronted him with it. I, you know, I, I confronted him head on with it. And, and as we talked and he began to feel a little bit more comfortable, he finally said to me, well, OK, he said, this is what happened. You know, I was called into the office in this treatment program and I wanted to leave the program, wanted to get out. And I asked what I needed to do. And the uh, counselor said, well, you need to work the 12 steps. Uh, so he said he went through those 12 steps in, in a matter of the shortest period of time possible. Right. <laughs> so he right. knew what he had to do, and he did it, but, uh, but he didn't really so-called um, work those steps.
0: Uh, indeed. I can remember sitting on the 28th day, and they're passing around the coin, and all of my adolescent new treatment buddies are telling me, how uh, spectacular uh, my recovery program is and how clearly I'm going to stay sober forever. (laughs) And the head treatment counselor, which I didn't even think this woman was paying attention, usurped the circle, took the coin, and looked at me straight in the eyes and said, you're lying to yourself. You're lying to this group. You will use again. It will probably kill you. And she walked out. Yeah, yeah. I had a large resentment against that woman. <laughs> For a long time, Richard. Uh, her name's uh, Eileen, and I still remember her very, very well. But she did me perhaps the biggest favor in my journey to sobriety. In that every time my addiction and substance use, my alcohol use, became unmanageable. Mm-hmm. That came into my head. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to this group. You'll probably use again and it will, you know, probably, you know, and, and, and she became sort of like that voice of conscience when it came to my substance abuse. So I, I'm, I'm internally grateful for her being willing to be completely honest with me because I needed it.
1: Yeah. yeah, And as an adolescent, that's not something they always like to hear. Um, in, resp- in retrospect, later on in, in life, they, they may look back on, on that and see that as perhaps one of the most meaningful events that happened in their life. But at the time, they're very very immediate focused and they just want the results. Just like this, this young man that I was talking to, he just wanted to get out of the treatment program. He didn't care what it took. He was going to do
0: it. That's it. How do I get out of here?
1: (laughs) How do I get out of here? Tell me what I got to do. I got to do 12 steps. Watch how quickly I go through them.
0: So we get this assessment any way we can, that becomes a non-negotiable so that we can help the adolescent move from this pre-contemplation stage to a stage where they're at least willing to look at their substance use and perhaps the underlying conditions that may be contributing to it. Yes, Exactly.
1: Exactly. You 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 need to know where you stand. You need to know what the diagnoses are. Uh, you need to know how serious an underlying uh, problem uh, is going on, if there is one. And then you need some recommendations on where do you go from here. And you have to rely on the professionals to guide you. the The diagnosis and the seriousness of the underlying issues and the seriousness of the substance abuse are going to are going to dictate and direct the kind of program that you will need um, some some kids may do very well in an outpatient program hmm. others uh, may need a uh, uh, an intensive program and, and some like many of the kids that I dealt with, are going to need long-term six to 12-month residential treatment in a place that not only is good at dealing with the alcohol and drug issue, the substance abuse issue, but really specializes in the underlying psychiatric issue. It might be an eating disorder. it uh, It might be a trauma experience. It might be depression or anxiety. But it needs to be a place that is skilled in dealing with the underlying issues as Well,
0: well said, and I I really believe if that would have occurred potentially earlier in my own journey to sobriety, maybe that would have you know triggered something a bit earlier. The reality though is identifying how we can address the underlying core issues, I think, is the real meat of this thing, right? being able to maybe identify how I might be able to experience freedom from those overpowering emotions and feelings without substances. That's the path, right? That's the, that's, that's the winner.
1: That's the winner. That's the path. Uh, And, uh, and, and and sadly uh, many, many adults, as well as many adolescents, uh, don't have access to that path. Um, they, they, they find that they end up in in treatment facilities that will do a very good job with the alcohol and drugs, but some but there's a big component missing in their overall treatment program, and that's not just addressing the underlying issue, but it's also giving them the skills that they need to be able to deal with these emotional issues without having to medicate them.
0: And that's huge, right? So we really um, a ate- two-part solution in that we have to address the underlying issues, mental health and otherwise, but then we also have to learn how to live life one at a time without drugs and alcohol and being able to use tools to be able to deal with Some of the emotions and feelings and and the the frustrations of everyday life, right? And without those tools, that's going to become overwhelming again at some point. And I know for my own self, that's when I'm at the greatest risk of relapse is when... Uh, the um, when life com- becomes overwhelming and emotions become overwhelming and I don't feel like I have a way to be able to deal with it.
1: Yes. And, 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 and the first step is to learn those skills and then to practice those skills. I've met, I've met a, a lot of teenagers, for example, who would go through um, uh, learning the, what we call dialectical behavior uh, therapy, where they learn a set of skills to be able to deal with intolerable thoughts and feelings mm. and memories. It's, there's a whole set of skills that can be learned. And, and, and I worked with some adolescents um, who had gone through this training multiple times. They could probably teach the course on it. <laughs> but the problem is they never practiced the skills. Mm -hmm. So they knew them, but they didn't practice them. And with like everything else, when you learn a new set of coping skills, you have to practice them. You Mm -hmm. have to continue practicing them. Um, So it involves learning the skills, And then practicing the skills. But our brains, you know, are sort of hardwired as a result of the substance use to go for the immediate relief.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's almost like we have to learn those skills. We have to practice those skills so that they will become so well well done, that they override our brains, which is telling us, go and seek the relief. You need it now, go and seek the relief. Mm. Um, And, but, but we can, we can learn those skills and we can practice them. And then over time, we can learn that these skills can become as effective as the substance use used to be in the past.
0: Indeed. And I, I know from my own recovery and sobriety, there's daily practices that I have integrated into my life. And I use the word practice intentionally because it is a practice. I didn't start out good at doing this stuff. And six years in, I'm still practicing. I'm still getting better at these daily tools that I've integrated into my life that help me deal with life on life's terms. you know and for me that involves prayer and meditation, but also self-care in physical activity and the ability to be able to pause when there is a well-up of emotion that is, um, uh, sort of try to dictate wh- how I behave right and so these practices are exactly that
1: yes they are um, and there's a reason we say Working the 12 steps. You're, you're, <laughs> yeah. you're working them. Well, it's very similar to what you were describing. You develop a, a, a coping plan, a coping strategy, and you have to work those strategies. You mm-hmm. and, and as you said very well, you have to repeatedly work them. Yeah. You have to continue to improve upon them. And 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 I often refer to it as a as a tool chest. You want to have as many coping school tools in your tool chest as you can have, because you may pick up a tool, a skill from your tool chest and it may not work. Yeah. Well if it's the only one you've got, you've you're in got trouble. Problem. You're in trouble. So Try to find, like you you mentioned several of them just a few minutes ago, but try and find as many skills as you can to put in your tool chest. If the first one you pull out doesn't work, then you've got others that you can try, but you have to keep developing them and working on them.
0: And that's why I think recovery meetings are so critical. Being in treatment, I think, is extremely beneficial Because we can learn these tools not only from the professionals that we engage in, maybe in a treatment setting, but also with our peers in recovery who are sharing tools that work for them. And we can identify those tools that might work for us and try them out and keep the ones that work, right? So, community and really engaging with our peers in recovery. And it can be of tremendous benefit from that perspective.
1: Yes, you not only get the support, but you also have a learning environment, as you just said. You can you can listen to other people's experiences, you can listen to other people's tools and their that they have in their tool chest. And you might pick up a few that you want to try. Maybe they'll work for you. Maybe they won't work for you, but at least you you're in an environment where people are, are, are supporting and sharing, and you can pick up a lot of good tools and suggestions by listening to what other people have experienced and found out this
0: works for them. And it's pretty powerful when I relate to somebody in a recovery who thought like I thought felt like I felt did what I did. and now they're have gotten well, That's a pretty powerful connection that I'm making there. And if they're identifying tools that worked for them and I, Respect and admire their own recovery. I'm liable to want to be able to try out what they're doing, right? So that's a pretty powerful dynamic there.
1: Yes, you've learned. Uh, you've learned that what works for uh, this person might also work for me. So I'll, I'll give it a shot. And and chances are, if it did work for somebody else, there's a there's a, a good probability <laughs> that it will work for you too.
0: Indeed, Richard, tell me some of the key differences between adolescent substance abuse and adult substance abuse is there a difference?
1: Yes there there, there are two major differences. The first difference is in brain development. The adolescent brain is not fully developed. The adult brain, once a a person gets uh, to age 24, 25 and beyond, their brain is fully developed. But an adolescent brain, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, whatever the age, their brain is in the process of developing. Mm -hmm. So, um, that increases their risk of getting captured into addiction because you're putting drugs or alcohol into an, a, a, a developing brain. And the last part of the brain to develop is the area that's called the prefrontal cortex, right behind the forehead. And that's that's an important part of, of the brain. They're all important, but this one's important because it helps us weigh uh, consequences, helps us make Rational, good decisions, hopefully, weigh the pros and cons. Well, that part of the brain is not fully developed until um, till late uh, adolescence, early adulthood. So, the first big change is um, difference is brain development. Mm. The second big change, or the second change between adult and adolescent uh, addiction is consequences. Adults who have become addicted to a substance have oftentimes faced consequences, mm-hmm. sometimes catastrophic consequences. Yeah. Uh, they may have lost a marriage. They may have lost a family. They may have lost a job. They may have been incarcerated. So adults who are trapped by addiction have often faced catastrophic consequences. These aren't little consequences. These are sometimes catastrophic adolescents on the other hand they haven't faced catastrophic consequences their big consequences their parents yelling at them or maybe grounding them for a while but they really haven't faced the kind of consequences that adults who are trapped by addiction have have faced so brain development consequences those are the two big differences that i think exist between adolescent and adult addiction
0: certainly made it hard to relate when i was going to 12 step meetings at the ripe old age of 16 and i was hearing guys in their 40s and 50s talk about dwis and lost marriages and on and on and i couldn't relate right uh, because i hadn't had any of those consequences and i i, I in some ways equated that to well clearly i I don't have a problem then because I don't have any of those consequences. And without those consequences, I guess I can continue to do what I'm doing, right?
1: Yeah, it, it can't be a problem for me because I'm not in those situations. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lose my wife. I'm not going to go right. to jail. I'm not going to lose right. my job because I don't have a job. So what's the big deal? Right. But typically, we see that the more severe the addiction, the more likely and the more number of consequences there are. But uh, but but an adolescent, um, you know, they're almost immune to consequences other than their family maybe grounding them or restricting them or, or taking away a privilege, and that just causes them to rebel even more sometimes so you set in in enforce this dynamic where the parent says you you stop doing this or else and and that causes the child to even rebel and in full full pull further apart
0: and i didn't equate any of those consequences when i was an adolescent to it being my fault it was my uh, that was my dad's fault right like, <laughs> yes like those consequences are because he's he's being an a-hole not exactly because, not because i'm doing anything wrong he's an a-hole you know? right it's
1: it's all him it's not right. me i'm all i'm right. fine i'm, I'm doing yeah, I need- it
0: all with him <laughs> (laughs)
1: He needs to lighten up a little bit. (laughs)
0: That's right. That's right. He needs to get off a freaking case.
1: You know, adolescents are all into themselves. And that's an example of, of, of them basically just living in their own world, even when it's a
0: dangerous world to live in. Absolutely. Absolutely. When we talk about the consequences substance use has on the adolescent brain, as an adolescent then enters sobriety, is there any long-term consequences on the brain?
1: Well, my message has always been that our brains have a remarkable capacity to heal themselves. Mm. Um, and when a person stops using a substance, whether it be alcohol or drugs, the brain starts to recover and improve and it, and it can actually be pretty pretty remarkable if, if we look at some of the brain images on how how well the brain has the capacity to improve itself now a lot of the improvement uh, depends on um, what substances were being used how young the person started using the substance and how long they used um, it It's much easier, for example, if you are looking at someone who might have used a substance for uh, two or three years than someone who has been using a substance for 15 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. But regardless of the substance and regardless of the extent of time, we know that once the person goes into recovery and stops using Our brains have a remarkable capacity to heal themselves. And you can see some pretty dramatic increases over time.
0: The addicted child is a guide for parents and loved ones to be able to help navigate what is invariably a very difficult situation to navigate with their child. Tell us how the book helps us navigate this situation.
1: Well, it is a navigation. It is a roadmap, so to speak, for parents or anyone interested in in, in adolescent substance abuse, because it, it helps us understand the neuroscience behind adolescent substance abuse, how these drugs and how alcohol works in the brain, in a very non-technical way. I wanted to make it really non-technical. I didn't want to load people down with a lot of scientific jargon. I wanted them to get a very quick overview of how substances work in the adolescent brain. I wanted them to know what assessments are important, like the ones we discussed. I I wanted them to be familiar with street drugs. So there is a chapter on the different types of drugs that are out there so that people can be aware of what they are and know a little bit about what marijuana is, what cocaine is, what LSD is, and and, and a lot of the other major drugs. I wanted them to be able to um, have an idea of if treatment is needed, what do we look for in a treatment program? What is an effective treatment program? So what are the principles of effective adolescent treatment? Um, There is also a chapter on what we call processing addictions. These are behavioral addictions. Um, You know, the alcohol and the drugs we refer to as being chemical addictions, Mm -hmm. but there's also process addictions. Examples are things like self-injury, uh, eating disorders, um, cell phone use, gaming disorders, and many times these process disorders can accompany an alcohol or drug use. I I treated a number of young girls, for example, who were smoking marijuana but all, were also self-injuring themselves. Mm. So, it's important that that get assessed also if a, if a parent believes their child might have a process disorder because you have to treat the process disorder at the same time that you're treating the uh, the alcohol or the drug disorder. You got two disorders going on. One's a chemical addiction, the other's a process addiction, you need to treat both. So I put that chapter in there just to let parents know a little bit about process disorders and how to recognize them, how to recognize if your child is self-injuring because many parents don't because kids are very good at hiding their cutting or how do you recognize your child might have an eating disorder? So I put that chapter in there too.
0: the co-occurrence in my experience of substance use addiction alcoholism uh, 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 the co-occurrence of mental health disorders is significant the co-occurrence of trauma is significant and so is the co-occurrence of as you brought up, process disorders like eating disorders, cutting as well, self-harm. All of that is very prevalent uh, when we are um, uh, dealing with somebody that is Uh, dealing with a substance use disorder. When
1: I came across it, it was a very serious problem Mm -hmm. Um, and and required, uh, in many cases, a longer treatment program than, say, an outpatient program. And I tended to see more cutting and more self-injury among female adolescents Mm -hmm. than males. Mm -hmm. Now, that, that may simply be a function of us just not knowing the extent of, of, of the male uh, yeah. disorder of cutting and, and eating disorder. Um, but when I did see it, and, and, and again, I worked in a psychiatric hospital, so I'm seeing, I'm seeing kids who have been brought to the hospital because this is really a, a situation that's got either life threatening or very, very severe. Um, there may be a lot more kids out there um, who are suffering with these underlying disorders um, and, and and using them to, to medicate. Uh, one young girl was both using marijuana and cutting. Uh, the thing is, because she was in a hospital, we could keep the marijuana away from her. Uh, that was that was easy to do. Mm-hmm. But but she still had this intense anxiety she was dealing with. So when she would get overwhelmed with anxiety, she didn't have her coping skill of marijuana the cutting would, would, or, or the attempted cutting would increase. Right. So oftentimes when you have these two going together, a, a process disorder like eating disorder or, or, or self harm and you have a substance use like marijuana or alcohol, when one of them goes down, the other one will spike up. So you can go ahead and treat the alcohol and the marijuana. But if you do and you don't treat the under the other issue, you're going to see the other one spike up.
0: I can intimately relate with that from my own experience. I, I relate it to as being sort of addiction whack a mole, right? That without meaningful and effective treatment and mental health therapy, if I was successful at reducing my substance use, invariably my alcohol use would go up, and vice versa. But also, if I, by some stroke of pure uh, luck, I was able to reduce both of those, then other things would pop up, like a process addiction or a process disorder, right? Um, and so that speaks to the fact that we have to get up to the underlying uh, issues that um, uh, that that are contributing to these things. Yes.
1: Yes, I, I like the uh, analogy that you drew with whack-a-mole because I think it's very appropriate. <laughs> you, you spend all your time, you know, and all of your energy, you know, trying to strike down one disorder, and the other one rises up more, and then you turn your attention to that, and the other one—it's—it's—it's—it it, really does talk to the issue of needing comprehensive treatment.
0: It does, and we have finite willpower. I've come to learn, right? Like we have a finite amount of personal sort of willpower that we could exert right on these issues that manifest. And I had more issues than willpower <laughs> I discovered. And well so, it's exhausting. Yeah. Uh,
1: it, it's exhausting and and the more issues that you have to deal with, the more exhausting it gets. And 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 and, and you know it it it's it's not a quick fix on anything.
0: Right. And then it became demoralizing, right? Because it felt like no matter what I did, um, there was always something else that was cropping up that was, you know, becoming unmanageable uh, because I hadn't, you know, uh, gotten to a place where I I was doing the real work that I needed to do to, you know, move through some of that big stuff and then learn the tools to be able to deal with that on a day in and day out basis. Richard, uh, before we close, The biggest message you would like to leave with our listeners about adolescent substance abuse?
1: I think the message would be learn as much as you can about it. If you have a child, Um, don't give up hope that you know there is effective treatment out there, recovery and, and sobriety is possible, and, um, and, and you can find the help that you need. Um, and get a copy of my book, too.
0: We have many listeners that likely are in my position that are in recovery from addiction and or alcoholism that may have adolescent kids. Any specific advice for those of us who are in recovery about potentially dealing with a child that may be engaging in substance use?
1: Yes uh, I, I say again, you know get a copy of my book keep it as a resource. you uh, you may have a a friend, you may know a family that's dealing with this and probably one of the best things that you can do is give them a copy of the book and and ask them to read it and maybe and maybe talk to you about it. You can bring a perspective as somebody who's in recovery, perhaps a perspective of hope but you can use that book, as the as as the starting point to a discussion a starting point that gives them hope gives them a roadmap on what to do. And you can sort of help them. So even though you may not have a child, um, you know, yourself, you may have grandkids, Mm -hmm. you may know people who have parents, and, and even if they don't have a child right now who's struggling with this, if they have an adolescent, I think this book will help them to get an understanding of it, and particularly help them to understand
0: what are the warning signs they
1: should look for. The
0: Addicted Child, a Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. Check the show notes. A link to the book is in there. Richard, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing with us some really great insight and some practical tools that we can use if an adolescent is engaging in substance abuse. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Charles. I appreciate your taking the time to, uh, to host the uh, session and particularly
0: uh, sharing your insights, which I think uh, made it uh, a much more valuable session. And thank you, everybody out there in Way Out Podcast Land. We will talk <laughs> to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week, so keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.